Well, happy Lord's Day. It's good to be face-to-face before the Lord together in worship this morning. And it's good for Marlene to be so close to me. Those of you that are visiting with her, I want you to know she usually sits as far away as she possibly can. So she's she's putting on a nice face for you this morning. You can talk to her about it after. We're going to be in John chapter 20 this morning, and primarily those first 18 verses, but I'm going to read a larger section of scripture than that so we can sort of situate ourselves in the context and get the full flavor of what it is John wants us to know. For those of you who are concerned that I have turned to traditional texts these past two weeks, fear not, we will return to Kings. I actually had one member text me and said, surely you're not preaching the resurrection this morning. I don't know what that says about you know, what I've done here, but nevertheless, John chapter 19, and I am going to start reading at verse 16. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth. That you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. 
So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bearing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it with linen cloths, with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. Because as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They've taken away my Lord. They do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Main idea this morning is this. The tomb is empty. If you want an expanded version, you can put this in your head. It's that Jesus died so that our sins can be forgiven, and he rose from the dead so that we can be free from death. If that's too long, just go with the tomb is empty. Put it in your pocket, carry it around all week, take it out and think about it. The tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. Jesus was crucified and he is the risen king. Your outline is there before you. Let's pray and begin our time together this morning. Heavenly Father, we commune with you every day, but we acknowledge that weekdays are worldly days and secular concerns reduce our heavenly impressions. We bless you, therefore, for this sacred day where we come to you together to be refreshed. We thank you for the institutions of religion by which we draw near to you and you draw near to us. We rejoice in another Lord's Day when we call off our minds from the cares of the world and attend upon you without distraction. Let our conversation be edifying, our reading pious, our hearing profitable. Lord, 
quicken and elevate our souls once more. We have come to the house of prayer. Pour upon us the spirit of grace and supplication. We are going to give you praise. Awaken in us every grateful and cheerful emotion. We have come to be instructed by your word. Let it be preached faithfully. Glorify it in the hearts of all who hear. May your word enlighten the ignorant, awaken the careless, reclaim the wandering, establish the weak, comfort the feeble-minded, make ready a people for their Lord. Father, speak now for your people. Listen. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mary comes to the tomb in a darkness which is felt. And it is a weight that we must ourselves feel if we are to climb inside of this passage and to see the light that comes out of the darkness in its fullness. It is only against the night that the star of the gospel shines bright and clear. You must remember that Mary comes here not expecting a resurrection, but merely to weep at the grave of a lost loved one. No one is expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. The disciples, together with Jesus' own mother and Mary Magdalene, watched who they thought was their deliverer die on a cross. They saw his blood and tears flow mingled down. They saw the spear thrust into his side. They saw him there suspended in the air by nails driven through his hands and through his feet. They saw the crown of thorns pressed upon his brow. They saw him suffocate. They saw the cruelty of the cross. And it wasn't just a cruelty. It was an ending kind of cruelty. All their hopes and dreams and desires had been tied to this one man. And there he was, bleeding and dying. And they listened to the shouts, he saved others, let him save himself. And watched as Jesus did nothing. Some Messiah. Messiahs don't die. They win. And here was the one that they thought was the king. Dead and in a tomb. The situation is hopeless. They, they don't understand any of these things at this point. They don't expect Jesus to rise. John wants us to see, particularly, that Jesus is dead. He's buried. As the princess bride taught us, he's dead, dead. But also notice what John understands on the other side of the resurrection. Did you hear that refrain? In chapter 19, this was to fulfill what the scripture said. Heard it a few times. Now, now John, in the moment, along with the disciples and the rest of the followers of Jesus, they weren't able to make sense of these things. They just saw brutality and devastation. But on the other side of the resurrection, they're able to look back and go, this was the fulfillment of the scriptures. Jesus' death, as brutal as it was, was no accident. 
it didn't happen by mistake. When Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem and was bathed in showers of Hosanna, that's Lord save, he knew what he was doing. He was provoking the events that would bring about his death. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he knew what he was doing. Do you remember how that account ends? Some believe, but others, Pharisees and scribes, begin to plot how they might kill Jesus. Jesus knows that he is going to the cross. Indeed, it was for this purpose that Jesus Christ was born. The cross was part of God's plan for salvation. Peter confirms this truth in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 when he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by death. God planned for the cross. John wants us to recognize this. Why? Why the cross? Because God is good and God wanted to save his people. God wanted to rescue all who will turn from their sins, turn from doing life their way, and submit themselves to his rule. God wants to save his people. You see, all of us, apart from relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, have sinned against God. We have all followed our hearts instead of being obedient to God's word. This is sin. This is rebellion. And sin against an infinitely good and great and holy and majestic God deserves infinite punishment. It deserves eternal torment. The punishment of hell fits the crime of de-godding God and pretending to be him ourselves. Evil deserves eternal punishment. You see, that's a problem for you and me, friend. Because you and I are evil. We have set ourselves up in rebellion against God. And because he is good, and because he punishes evil, his promise to come and one day end evil completely and make all things new, well, that puts us under his wrath. We deserve hell. So how can God save an evil people? How can God take rebel hearts and make them new? How can he take his enemies and make them his sons? Here is the answer. The cross. Jesus Christ comes to die for the sins of his people, for all who repent and trust in him. That's why he is named Jesus. Remember back in Matthew chapter 1, the angel says, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God the Son took a second nature onto himself at Christmas and took up residence in the womb of a virgin girl so that he might die on Good Friday, raise from the dead on the Lord's day, and come again to make all things well. 
Jesus came to save we who deserve hell by taking hell for us on the cross. Love how Peter puts it, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, for our sake, he, that's God the Father, made him to be no sin, I'm sorry, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Or again in Colossians chapter 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The cross is the means by which God forgives the sins of his people. Someone has to pay for sins, right? If you, if you come to my house, and assuming my children haven't destroyed things already, uh, you know, you, you destroy a lamp or something, and I, I want to replace that lamp, someone has to pay for it. Like, you can pay for it, I can pay for it, I could even just not replace it, but then still I'm paying the cost of going without light. Someone has to pay the cost to make things right. Likewise, with our sins, God does not just sweep them Under the rug, he absorbs the cost himself. He dies for the sins of his people. Jesus goes to the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. Non-Christian, who will pay for your sins? It will either be you you can trust Christ. His death will be credited to your account as if it were your own. And his life, his righteousness will be credited to you as if it were your own. It is only through Christ that we can be made right with God. John, though, doesn't see this yet. Mary certainly doesn't see it. She's come to the place of Jesus' death. It is dark. There are, we can imagine, warm tears upon her face. Incredible weight of grief. She comes merely to weep and finds the stone rolled away. She doesn't conclude resurrection. She concludes robbery. The ignominy and humiliation of Jesus continues in her eyes. We come to the tomb with her in verse 1 of chapter 20. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Notice, and this is really interesting, despite the fact that Jesus said he would rise on the third day over and over again, nobody expects that. But also notice this, all the gospel authors and John here, they record the resurrection of Jesus not happening on the third day, but on the first day of the week. That's not insignificant. It's signaling us to a wonderful truth that Jesus is the first fruits of a new creation, a new week, a new beginning. His resurrection is the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth to come. 
It is the beginning of the life all of his people will inherit. It's also significant in another way. If you've ever wondered why Christians gather together on Sunday and call it the Lord's Day, this is why. Because every Sunday we are gathering together to worship our crucified and risen King. Week after week after week, we come together to hear God's word read, to participate in the sacraments together, to encourage one another, and to sing together. Up from the grave he rose, with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to, I'm not a good singer, reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. We gather on Sunday because it is the Lord's day. It's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Friends, Is the Lord's Day a priority in your life? I would suggest to you that it ought to be. Make this day a priority. This is fresh oxygen week after week. During the week, it's almost like we walk through Holy Week every week. And by the end of it, we feel a little worn out. And then on Sunday morning, glory. The best part of every week for the Christian is gathering together with God's people to give Jesus Christ the glory and honor and praise that he is worthy of. Make the Lord's Day a non-negotiable in your schedule. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with Christians. They'll say to me something like, you know, Pastor, my spiritual life is just so dry. I feel like God is so distant. And nine times out of ten, when I follow up with the question, have you been going to church? They'll answer, no, not really. And I'll go, do you think there's a connection here? You know, the Lord Jesus Christ has said to his people, you are the body of Christ for a reason. I've used this illustration too much, but I can't resist. When I was younger, my my dad was cutting ham, I think it was, and he accidentally cut off the top part of his finger. Uh, My mom was smart, and so she, I almost said smart at the time, she's still smart. Uh, She grabbed the tip of his finger, put some ice in a bag, threw the finger in the bag, went to the hospital, once they got to the hospital, hospital reattached, it works fine. You can never, never even know that it happened. But you know what happens if you just leave that finger on the ice for a couple weeks? It decays. becomes lifeless. So too, friends, that is your spiritual life when you are disconnected from the body of Christ. When you come together with the other members of Christ's body, you will find vitality and life. Isolate yourself, though. You will find yourself beginning to wither. Make the Lord's Day a priority. Not because, oh, it's Sunday, but because Jesus is your priority and because Jesus is worthy. Mary doesn't know that on this day, the Lord is risen. She runs to Peter and John, not to tell them Jesus is alive, but Jesus' body has been stolen. Look at verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple. The other disciple here is John. He also calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Not an arrogant thing, it's just sort of a humble thing. He doesn't want himself to be the point. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I love that. It's such a fun little piece of information. 
I was faster than him. And stooping to look in, this is John, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and, and this is just right in line with Peter's personality, you know, ask questions later. He goes right into the tomb and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, he really wants us to know that, also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. This is really interesting. John sees and believes before they go back to their homes. And it introduces a theme into John's gospel in this chapter in particular, that between seeing and believing. You'll see it down in verse 19 here in chapter 20, when the disciples, again on that first day of the week, it's evening, they're in a room, the doors are locked, and all of a sudden, here's Jesus. And he says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands and his side, and they see the Lord, and we're we're to assume they believe. Thomas shows up later at the end of the chapter, starting verse 24, and he says, I am not going to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead until I see him with my own eyes and I touch his wounds with my own hands. Eight days later, they're in a locked room again, hiding out. Jesus shows up again, says, peace be with you again, and then says, what's up, Thomas? Here are my wounds. You see me with your eyes. Go ahead. And Thomas, interestingly, he doesn't put his fingers in the wounds like he said he wanted to. He simply falls to the ground. Listen to what he says, verse 28, chapter 20. My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then John gives us a little commentary here, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why, John? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. John recognizes that you and I will not walk in this life with Jesus Christ in the flesh. And what he is aiming to do is tell us, I saw Jesus crucified. I saw these things happen. I was there. He really lived. He really died. He really rose from the dead. I've written this down so that you will be more blessed than me. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. John is telling us, look, you you can't see and believe because Jesus will have ascended by the time you read this. But you must hear and believe. This is what Paul says in Romans. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of God. Hearing the good news of Jesus Christ crucified for sins, raised for justification, and returning to this earth to bring happily ever after with him. John wants us to hear and believe. That's the whole stinking point of this book. It's the point of the Bible. It's the point of your life that you would hear the good news about Jesus Christ dead for your sins and risen again for your life, that you would hear it and that you would believe. Not just because it sounds nice. Sometimes I... I think people have a character of Christians where they go, oh, it's just blind faith. You just believe in Jesus because it sounds really good. And wouldn't it be great if the world was really like that? You know, it gets the sensitivities going in you, the warm fuzzies. We don't believe this message just because we think it's nice. We believe it because it's true. Faith is not believing just what you like about things. 
Faith in the Lord Jesus is believing what you know to be true because you have good reason to believe it's true. These are historically reliable documents. And they testify to the truth that Jesus Christ really did get up from the dead. Read N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God if you have questions about this. The most plausible explanation for the rise of Christianity is that Jesus really is alive. Look at any other world religion's leader. They're dead. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Jesus Christ is alive. Hear and believe. Non-Christian, believe this truth. Christian, journey had it right. Don't stop believing. Believe. What is it, though, that causes John to see and believe? He tells us he believes, but then you see in verse 9, he basically confesses, hey, we didn't understand that this was according to the Scripture yet. So what causes, what does he see exactly? Look back at verse 5. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, that's twice, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. So we have three things that John sees that lead to his believing. Uh, The stone is rolled away, there are clothes on the floor, and then uh, the face cloth is folded up. So why would this cause John to believe? What is what is he trying to tell us here? I think we will see most clearly when we consider another resurrection in John's gospel. Turn with me to John 11 and look at verse 43. When he had said these things, that's Jesus, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. John is showing us a contrast between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. They are fundamentally different in character, and he shows us through the grave clothes. Lazarus' grave clothes still cling to him because he will die again. Jesus' grave clothes are on the floor because death has no purchase on him any longer. Lazarus has to have somebody take the face cloth off of his head, but Jesus has folded his face cloth up and lied it there because he will never return to the grave. After all, that's what you do when you're done with something. You you fold it up or you make it up. Think of sometimes in the morning, uh, I'll get up, you know, go to the bathroom or grab a glass of water, and I'll think to myself, you know, I'm going to snooze a little bit today. I'm going to get back in my bed. And I will walk into my room and discover that my bed is made. And I'll be like, it was three minutes. Guess I'm not sleeping the rest of the day. Bed has been made. We are done with it for now. Or maybe more pertinent, uh, recently Chelsea swapped my kids' clothing out because we had a few nice warm days and now it's cold again. But, But she swapped their clothes out because there was a change of season. She folded up all those winter clothes and put them in one of those ugly gray like Rubbermaid containers, you know, and then stowed it away to gather dust. This is what Jesus is doing here. This is what John is showing us. 
Jesus has folded up the cloth because he's done with it. He's done with death. You can think of it as if he's putting death in the Rubbermaid and stowing it away in the attic to gather dust as but a distant memory. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any crying or pain anymore. Because the one who's seated on the throne, well, he's coming. And he will say, behold, I have made all things new. His work has already started. He is risen. And all the saints that have fallen asleep since then, well, already their tombs are creaking and cracking. There is a resurrection coming. Mary doesn't yet believe. She's still in despair and she returns to the tomb, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. I do love the courage from her. She's like, I'll carry his body myself. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. It was dark when Mary began her weeping on Good Friday. Her tears have veiled the light ever since. Night has presided over her early morning trip to Jesus' headstone. The stone is rolled away and she sees angels and yet her weeping continues. They've stolen his body. She sees who she thinks is the gardener. Why are you weeping? They've stolen his body. And Jesus opens her eyes by speaking her name, Mary. Isn't this a wonderful picture of your conversion Christian? You are at loss in life. You don't know what to do. There seems to be no hope. And then all of a sudden, Jesus Christ speaks your name and the scales come off of your eyes. Do you believe? It's a picture of Christian conversion. I also think it is a picture of our future. When we will see the Lord Jesus Christ, he will call us by name. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Her anguish, her despair, her meaninglessness, her hopelessness, all of it is swallowed up in that moment when Jesus speaks her name. I don't think that she's entirely off base either here when she identifies Jesus as the gardener. I think this is a fun wrinkle. Here Jesus stands in a garden as Adam once did. Not as one who brings death to all men, but as the one who brings life. He stands not as one who climbed the tree of life that he might take and eat fruit from it, plunging humanity into sin. But as the one who climbed the tree of curse, so that all who take and eat of his flesh and drink of its blood might have life. Jesus is the gardener who brings abundant blessings whose life yields much fruit, just as he said it would, John 
chapter 12, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus' death has bared much fruit. It has produced much glory. And we see a little bit of it in verse 17. And Jesus says, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Let me paraphrase Jesus here. This is a difficult verse. He says, look, I am not disappearing. I'm not going back into the grave again. You don't have to hold on to me like I'm going somewhere. I'm going to ascend to my Father. That's in process. But what I want you to do right now is go tell my brothers that I've risen from the dead and that I'm on my way to their father and my father. Think about this now. When Jesus went to the cross, the disciples are said to have been scattered like sheep without a shepherd. He walked alone. Peter has denied him. And Jesus says, go to these men who left me in my darkest hour, these ones who could not stay awake but a few minutes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Go to them, tell them I'm alive. But he doesn't just say go to them. He goes, says, go to my brothers. Tell them that I'm going to our Father, to my God, and to your God. Jesus has accomplished the goal to which he set out. He has brought God's enemies into God's family. He has made all who believe in him his brothers. Christian, we who believe in Jesus have been united to Jesus by the Holy Spirit adopted into the family of God, swept up into the eternal love of the Trinity. God the Father loves you, and you share a righteous standing with Jesus Christ. That is incredible. Amazing love, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. This is what we are given because Jesus died and rose. I do think so many of us are prone to Mary's experience. Suffering and difficulty come to us in this life and even though God has told us his promises over and over and over again, we don't believe them. We despair. We go about in the night crying at metaphorical tomb after metaphorical tomb. Actually, sometimes literal tombs as death swallows up another loved one. Friends, when you are in the dark, do not doubt what God has said in the light. When you are in the throes of despair, when it seems like God is silent on Saturday and you are at the tomb weeping on Sunday morning, remember uh, the stone isn't rolled away because somebody stole Jesus' body and God is out of control. It's rolled away because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Christian maturity is not learning to accept this sinful and broken world as it is. Christian maturity is believing the promises of God and living by faith, knowing that Jesus Christ is going to raise you up out of death, that he's going to redeem all of the cosmos. Friends, when there is difficulty and struggle in your life, remember the words of Jesus to the disciples just before his crucifixion, John chapter 16 and verse 20. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born in the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. A lot of this life will feel like childbearing. It's hard work, it's blood and sweat and tears, and it's messy. My wife has had six kids. I saw the first one born and I thought, never again. How could, why would somebody go through so much pain and anguish? And Jesus knows. Because after all that suffering is over, glory. Glory. That's the illustration Jesus is using here. He's saying, what you are going through now, Paul says it later, is going to produce for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. The glory to come in eternity is so heavy, it's so great, when you look back on the difficulties you experienced in this life, they're going to feel light as a feather. They will even justify They will be justified because of the glory that you are enjoying. So friends, as we celebrate the reality of Jesus' resurrection on this Easter Sunday, let me ask you this question. Why do you weep? He is risen. The tomb is empty. The king is coming. Let's pray.